You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I feel like it's been a while since I saw you. Does that seem right? Or no. Or did, did we just see each other? We just saw each other. When was that? I don't know, man. You don't even remember, see? Last time we did this stupid podcast. That was a week ago. Not long enough. Are you freezing me out? Are you freezing me out of your life? Let's just say I've had to take a good hard look at my social circle, and I'm cutting I'm cutting the negative people out of my life, Chad. It's all positive from here on out for Ben Folks. Next thing I know, I turn around, you're going to be hosting a podcast with Brendan Schaub. I, th- I hear he just agreed to a multi-year deal, so I think that's out. Well, in that same vein, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast, per usual, is brought to you by DraftKings.com. You're an MMA fanatic and proud of it. You know all the fighters. You watch all the fights. You're listening to an MMA podcast right now. It's time you put your knowledge of the sport to the test at DraftKings.com. At DraftKings, you could win huge cash prizes every time you play. Just select five fighters, stay under the salary cap, outscore your competition, and you could be on your way to a massive payday. Score points for significant strikes, takedowns, advances, knockdowns, and more. These are the biggest daily fantasy MMA contests anywhere, and only DraftKings has them. Play to win a piece of the $1 billion in prizes that DraftKings is giving away this year. Do not miss out, Ben. Tell them how CME listeners can play for free. Well, Chad, you hurry to DraftKings.com now and use promo code CME to play Daily Fantasy MMA for free this weekend during UFC 191. Remember, use CME to play for free now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. Do you have any update on the Co-Main Event Podcast book club that you want to give at all? Maybe a reminder? Tell everybody what's up? I've been reading. I don't know about you. I've been reading. I've heard from several listeners who say that they've gone ahead and bought uh, To Light Us, To Guard Us by Sean O'Connell. Uh, and even one listener who says that described himself as a, as a fan of the genre of like kind of fantasy lit and said he's into it so far, which I, you know, neither of us, I think, are really normal readers of that genre. So I'm encouraged that somebody who is thinks that this is right in their wheelhouse. We will need that person's comments for sure. Very much so. When it comes so. time to record the CME Book Club episode. Uh, did you see that somebody actually compared it favorably to Snow Crash, which you and I, I did, did I, read. I did see that. We did we read that. we were forced to when we were in the same class together in grad school. Uh, so tell me what this, what are we dealing with here? You say, you keep saying fantasy. You haven't even, you haven't even cracked it nope, open? I haven't bought so it yet. So to speak? No, I have not purchased it. Jeez, even Danny Boy Downs has purchased it. And begun to read. Yeah, well, I'm going to get to it. Okay. And I'm a fast reader. You're going to, I feel like you're leaving this to last minute, like you do. Well, we haven't even set a date yet. We don't even know when we're going to do the damn thing. So I have to, I have to set a date to get you to take this seriously. You set a date and I'll start training as hard as anybody. (laughs) You're, you're the guy who just, you know, just about to start training camp. You see him, you see him at the bar with a drink in each hand. He, uh, he's just about to start getting in shape. Just about to start working hard. Uh, what's the book about? Tell me, give me a little bit more. You keep saying fantasy. I don't, does that mean there's dragons? Are there, is there sword play? I have not, it's more modern than that. I have not come across any dragons yet. However, uh, 
an angel did appear in the midst of a gun battle. Uh, so that kind of shit. Okay. I can dig it. Yeah. All right. I'll get on that. To light us, to guard us by UFC fighter Sean O'Connell. That's right. And he actually wrote it. UFC light heavyweight. Am I right? That's right. All right. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, could somebody please make up their goddamn minds about when Ronda Rousey is fighting and who? And in round number two, Bellator gives up on Fedor. The barn cat gives up on Bellator, and Bellator finally gives up the pairings for its light heavyweight tournament. And in round number three, Demetrius Johnson and John Dodson both seem to be getting pretty ornery leading up to their UFC 191 clash over the flyweight title. So, you guys gonna watch? All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Nick Piccolino. He writes, if I were Fox Sports, would I have the right to be pissed at the UFC for consistently choosing to go on ESPN to announce big news such as Ronda, Holly Holm being moved to UFC 193? I completely get it. FS1 and their state-run broadcasts don't have much in the way of eyeballs on them, but the UFC doesn't even pretend to care about their broadcast partnership in these situations. Uh, ben, I have to say that I also think this is a little bit weird, don't you? That the It does seem like, especially lately, I would say within the last year or so, uh, we've been seeing a lot of the UFC on ESPN, you know, whether that just be coverage for Ronda Rousey or rumors that Brock Lesnar is coming back, but... Uh, Dana White has made an awful lot of appearances on SportsCenter to announce this kind of news. And, uh, you, you know, anymore, you typically get, uh, UFC main eventers for their larger shows going on SportsCenter. Uh, I believe they even took the Octagon up there to Bristol, Connecticut, and set it up, uh, in the parking lot for a Chris Weidman fight. Uh, not that he, he didn't have the fight in the parking I lot. I get you. Okay, yeah. Good. I'm, I'm glad. But yeah, it seems a little weird, right? Cause like, we got this multi year multi-million dollar uh, Fox Sports deal underway. Well, I think for a long time for the UFC, ESPN has been like that, the one that got away, kind of. They they always want that attention, that big mainstream sports media attention from ESPN. And they want it so much that it's like, you know, they can be, they can be dating a new girl and it's going fine. Everything's going well. But then when ESPN calls and says, what are you doing Friday night? They quickly call the other girl and say they're sick. And no, I'm free. I'm free, SPN. What do you have in mind? Oh, you're washing your hair that night? Damn it. That's, they go back and forth with ESPN like this. They just, they, they crave that kind of validation, I think. And I mean, I, I can understand being pissed if you're Fox Sports. I also think that if you're dealing with the UFC at this point and the maybe, who knows exactly what the state of the Fox and UFC deal is, how exactly happy each side is with it at this point, but it always seems like for media organizations, you don't buy the UFC's affection so much as rent them. You know, like the, the, especially when you're, when you're looking at, the, if you're Fox Sports and you're looking at the UFC, they've got fight pass. They're kind of positioning themselves to be a little bit more, uh, agile for whatever the, the new landscape of, of media turns out to be. You, you do have to get the sense, do you not, if you're Fox Sports that, hey, maybe they're thinking about a future without you. It's, you know, as a guy who used to work at ESPN and as an MMA writer, it's strange to me because when I left the company, uh, when was that? 2010? 2011? We were so young then. 
I, I got the impression that ESPN was sort of washing its hands of mixed martial arts at the time. Like, uh, just from the inside, it felt as though, you know, the people in charge of TV and the people in charge of, of certainly where to spend the money and, and, and distribute the budget didn't want to have anything to do with, with mixed martial arts. And over the time that I was there, the, the, you know, the budget got caught, got cut a couple of times and, Obviously, Chuck Mindenall had to leave and go, and go find something else to do with MMA fighting. And then eventually it got to the point where uh, I got offered the Bleacher Report thing. And, and uh, I went back and asked my ESPN editor if there was a chance that ESPN would want to retain my services. And he was like, man, take the Bleacher Report deal because I don't see this getting any better. <laughs> uh, so I bailed. And then like a month after that, they pretty much cut the entire MMA staff except for Brett Okamoto. Yeah, really turned it into a one-man show. Yeah, and, and so Brett is still over there doing doing good work. Uh, but at that time, I just thought, okay, well, this is over. Like, they're not they're, – they just don't want to have anything to do with it. And I didn't know if it was just because ESPN didn't really respect the sport or was slow to to accept it or because the UFC signed that deal with Fox that ESPN was just kind of like, okay, well, this is not our bag. ESPN decides kind of maybe we don't give that much of a damn about sports that we can't make money off of. And so like the about face, I like, I feel is, is pretty weird, especially since, uh, they kind of, I mean, they gave, they gave MMA some props during what was otherwise the biggest boom years of the UFC in 2009 and 2010, but kind of kept it at arm's length. So it's strange to me now to see them kind of seemingly embracing the UFC, uh, more and more, almost to the point that it makes me wonder if there is a financial relationship going on under the surface, which we always hear rumors about, and, you know, as it concerns various outlets. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, not buying the UFC's affections, but renting them. And I think in this case, it would go the other way. Uh, but like, that's just speculation. I don't know anything about that, but it does seem very strange that Dana White continually goes on SportsCenter to, to break this news. And if I was Fox Sports, like you said, I would, it would be things that make me go, hmm. Yeah. Well, and then again, you also have Ronda Rousey going on Good Morning America uh, to announce her next fight, presumably to my mom's friends. Right. And that's on ABC, isn't it? What channel's Good Morning America? I don't on? know, man. Maybe an ESPN property, a Disney sure. property. Maybe. That's just, a, yeah, I don't know. Uh, next question this week comes from Darcy LeDrew. He writes, a lot of pundits, including Joe Silva, according to John Anik on his podcast, are calling for the small cage for every event, pointing out that it leads to more finishes. I might be in the minority, but I think that the smaller cage will negate the importance of footwork, lead to more concussions, and ultimately take away one more tactical approach from fighters. Am I exaggerating this? And then it says, discuz. Yeah, that's an interesting D-I-Z-K-U, spelling. D-I-Z-K-U, and then a bunch of Zs. A lot of Zs. Followed by two exclamation points. And then it says, please. Right. Nice. Nice contrast. You know, I think that we sometimes oversimplify this small cage thing by just saying small cage equals knockouts. So I've talked to several different fighters about how they feel about it. And some of them say, you know, like a lot of guys have referred to the small cage in conversation with me as the grappler's cage. Because they feel like easier to get a takedown in a smaller cage. You just, there's not as much room to run and hide and to avoid that easier. Like if your goal is to back somebody up into the fence and get a takedown from there, which is where most of the takedowns happen in MMA these days, then you should want to fight in a smaller cage, right? I mean, that's why Tim Kennedy was saying he wanted to fight Bisping in the smaller cage was your, your chances of uh, enacting that game plan are a lot better in a smaller cage. But I also think too, it depends heavily 
on weight class. Because if you've got some heavyweights in there, like Matt Mitriona said, it feels like you're taking a couple steps and you're all the way on the other side of the cage. You just don't have as much room to work. But for the flyweights, maybe not as huge a, a difference there. So I don't know if it's quite as simple as just uh, small cage equals concussion fest. Uh, but there does seem to be more finishes in the small cage, which I can see why the UFC would want that. You know what really helps the grapplers is if you put an incline right up against the, the fence. Okay. You call it a, a pit. A pit. You refer you to the cage yeah. as a pit. There you go. And uh, you, you talk big about how it's going to increase the excitement, quality, value of the fights. And then it just turns out it's super easy for, uh, for guys to take other guys down. Chris Tuscherer to go out there and just take everybody down. That's, uh, that's what happens when you got a pit you know, type scenario. Everybody with the benefit of hindsight, Chad, <laughs> looks like a genius. But come on, I I remember you giddy with excitement in the early days of Yama pit fighting. The early, yeah, all the those early, early day, early that day. early night, right? Uh, yeah, I talked to Demetrius Johnson this past week as leading up to UFC 191, and he was telling me, like you said, when you're two five foot three, 125 pound guys in there. The octagon, in his words, feels, quote-unquote, fucking enormous. Uh, <laughs> and it looks enormous when yes, they're in there, too. Yes, it does. And, you know, there was some magic in that old WEC, the smaller cage. The, those fights for uh, bantamweights and featherweights always seemed to be extraordinary, and they always used the smaller cage. So uh, I think I'm kind of in favor of a case-by-case basis. Maybe when you're going to have flyweights in the main event, like we're going to have this next weekend coming up at UFC 191, uh, the small cage might not be a bad choice. And then, you know, if you're going to do an entire main card of heavyweight fights like they did back at UFC, whatever it was, uh, then the bit, the large cage might yeah. feel more apropos, almost like you should go by the size of the competitors. Yeah. But then, uh, I mean, you know that that's not how they, they do it. They do it based on size of venue. And I can imagine it would make some heads explode in the UFC office with already the logistical difficulties they face putting on events. If you want them to also be like, oh, by the way, uh, we're in a small uh, fight night size venue here on this next weekend. So don't book any heavyweights. But then the next weekend, uh, we're in the MGM Grands and don't book any flyweights. Uh, you know, they... I think that would maybe be a bit too much to ask. Well, it would it would certainly cause a lot of problems if you tried to completely eliminate heavyweights from the small cage and vice versa. I'm just saying, you know, when you've got your, your tent pole events, as it were, like UFC 191 this weekend, and you got uh, the flyweight title on the line, you might want to do Demetrius Johnson and John Dodson a favor by, by putting the, the small cage out there. Uh, but then, you know, and that, that obviously would come at the expense of Frank Mir and Andre Arlovsky, who are there also on that card, but... Got to break a few eggs, man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Get to where you want to go. Just ruthless businessman Chad Dundas. Next question this week comes to us from Anthony Varney. He writes, I liked Max Holloway's call out of Frankie Edgar. A couple of days later, it's announced that Edgar will be fighting Chad Mendez in a title eliminator on the eve of Aldo versus McGregor. Where does this leave young Jerome Max Holloway? It's his, is his best option to wait for Oliveira's pile of trash esophagus to reattach itself. Please discuss. Uh, it was, it was a little while there, Ben, that it seemed like almost everyone who didn't have a fight or had just won a fight, wanted to fight old man Frankie Edgar. And Frankie Edgar went on the social medias to let it be known he was cool with fighting whoever. Uh, and it seemed like even before this Chad Mendez matchup was announced, Frankie Edgar knew that he was fighting on December 11th, the day before uh, 
the UFC, what is it, 194, where McGregor and, and Aldo are, are booked to Which is a genius move to, to – It to, is, and that's, you know, that's just kind of where I was going. We, you know, Frankie Edgar knew he was fighting the day before – uh, and he said he would pretty much fight anybody on that day. Then the Chad Mendez fight gets announced. Not necessarily the matchup I think we were expecting for either of those guys. But at the same time, I believe, as we referred to in the Breakfast of Champions this past week, kind of the Swiss Army knife of fight bookings. Because A, it's an awesome main event for the Tough 22 finale where uh, your coaches, Conor McGregor and, and Uriah Faber, are not going to fight. Uh, it's a quality uh, cable TV main event that nobody is going to complain about. And then on top of all that, it's definitely an insurance policy. Yeah. Because if either Conor McGregor or Jose Aldo has to pull up lame prior to UFC 194, you already have two really good uh, fill-in options available in Chad Mendes and Frankie Edgar, both of whom will be coming off full training camps and won't have to adjust their weight cut too much. Uh, and there's another, oh, it's Habib Nurmagomedov and, uh, Tony Ferguson is already right. on the tough 22 card. So if, if you get into a doomsday scenario and have to pull Frankie Edgar off that card and put him on UFC 194, uh, you can just go ahead and make Habib versus El Kukui the main event of right. the tough 22, which well, is, and then you, you hope it ask. doesn't come to that, but if you, if you got to do it, you could do a lot worse. You could do a lot worse. I, I wonder there though, uh, would it then switch to being five rounds? Cause as I said in last week's show, uh, Tony Ferguson style, which I love of in a three rounder against a guy like Nurmi, kind of a nightmare situation for him. Uh, but five rounds against Nurmi, hey, maybe he has a chance to pull something off. So maybe he's hoping for a situation like that. But you're right that it does give them a lot of options there. As for what Max Holloway should do, I think waiting for Oliveros Pilotrafus esophagus to reattach itself, uh, is the, the worst possible outcome for him. I think if he's, if he wants to take the, the Dundasso school approach, I know one of your favorite and least executed Dundasso moves is where the guy walks away from the, from a downed opponent and basically forces the referee to stop it. Like just go ahead and act like the fight's over and then maybe other people will start acting like that. Yes. I think that's what he, he should do here with this one. Act like you just won that one and move on and hope everybody else you know, there's so many fights that happen. We'll all kind of forget. And in our heads, we'll be like, oh, yeah, well, that was a, just a that was a victory for Max Holloway. Uh, don't remember the exact method, but uh, yeah, he's ready for bigger and better things. That's what I'd do here. Move on. I agree. I don't I mean, I think really early on the UFC broadcast itself tried to suggest that we should try to put Charles Oliveira and Max Holloway together for a rematch. I'm not sure we totally need to see that. It no. didn't seem as though Charles Oliveira was about to jump out of the booth and win that fight. Well, I mean, they're like a minute and a half in. Right, but Max Holloway was touching him up pretty good. Like, if we're going to go ahead and say that about uh, Sarah McMahon when she fought Ronda Rousey, well, let's do it here, too. Let's just, we'll just sweep this into the dustbin and Max Holloway can move on. And you know what I would do if I was him? I would take a hard look at this Ricardo Lamas versus Diego Sanchez fight, which is on November 21st at the finals of The Ultimate Fighter Latin America 2. Which okay. apparently is a thing. Uh, <laughs> you made that up. That's what. No, I, I mean, I'm look. I'm granted. I'm looking at it on Wikipedia. Some <laughs> joker could have got on here and made that into a thing. But like, if I'm Max Holloway, I would. I would say I want to fight the winner of that. Can you imagine if we got? Not that this will happen, but could you imagine if we got Max Holloway versus Diego Sanchez at featherweight? Why would you? Why do you even? entertain that flight of fancy there would that be Diego Sanchez is going to come out of that fireworks fight. would be lit the only way Diego Sanchez wins that is another horrible decision I put the disclaimer on there I said not that this would happen but can you imagine 
I, I cannot. Forgot. I forgot. You don't have much imagination. Not that over much. there on that side of the table. Next question this week comes to us from Paul Peterson. He writes, food for thought. Eliminate the 170-pound division and create a 165-pound division and a 175-pound division. This will, one, give the Jorge Masvidal's and Kelvin Gasolums of the world less to cry about, which should increase in number soon with the IV ban and PED testing coming into play, and two, give some relief to the logjam that is the lightweight division. And three, give the UFC another champion to load up cards with. I know you guys are not very positive on the whole more weight classes are good argument, but with 15 pounds between lightweight and welterweight and welterweight and middleweight, it seems like it could totally work this time. Bigger 155 pounders move up, most 170 pound fighters move up, and very few middleweights move down. Everyone wins! Exclamation point. Uh, this idea seemed to get a lot of traction this past week, and I'm not entirely sure why except that i saw that somebody made a nifty graph to show the glut of fighters around 155 pounds and 170 and the dearth of fighters uh and almost every other weight class and that this kind of evens it out to to break that up into more weight classes and kind of uh you know what did they say super middleweight and super welterweight is that what we're dealing with here or something or like junior that. welterweight something like that so somebody can be super somebody else can be junior yeah, I mean, there you go. Nobody would argue with that. Uh, and as a po- as you know, mentioned in this in this listener mail, I'm not sure. I think it's a great idea to have more champions. Although, the more time that passes, the more I feel like I become more malleable on this point. Like if they did do this, which would take a lot of uh, administrative uh, juggling behind the scenes, because it's not like this is just one organization that does this. We're talking about you know, basically the structure of the entire sport. But if this did go down, uh, I wouldn't hate it, but I also don't think it's the number one thing that we should focus on. Yeah, I would go along with it under the heading, if we were to do it, if we were to add any weight class, that's where I'd want to do it. And that's how I'd want it. Because I heard somebody in my Twitter mailbag, I think last week, somebody was like, hey, how about breaking up heavyweight into two different uh, divisions because it spans such a huge range size-wise. But then the point there that I tried to make was there we have a hard enough time finding good heavyweights as it is. Uh, it's, well, that cruiserweight division would be hot, though, <laughs> down there at, one, at 225. Yes. The, well, I mean, no one's denying that the, the cruiserweight division has a ton of potential. You just bring Rampage in, throw the belt on him. Yeah. You don't even have to have him fight for it. That would be exciting. He's he'd been be, fighting at cruiserweight for years. He'd be happy with that for all of five minutes, and then he'd find a reason to get mad. Uh, but I, I think, yeah, if you were to add another division, add it where you already have a ton of good talent and where, you know, like lightweight is crazy when you think about how you can have a six, seven fight win streak, guy like Tony Ferguson, and still you're not even really that close to being in the title contention. Whereas other divisions, hey man, string two in a row together and we're going to start looking at you pretty hard for that title shot. So I could see a lot of people benefiting from that. I could also see how the UFC sometimes might feel like it could use another belt to throw around on a, a pay-per-view event or to, to spice up the advertisements for a, a broadcast event. But I don't know, man. Like you said, it it, re- it involves a lot of moving gears uh, in order to make something like that happen. And I'm not sure you could get that kind of consensus very easily. And what you want to avoid is the boxing situation right? where nobody even knows who the damn champs are or what weight classes they fight in unless they're like – unless you're a, a hardcore boxing spectator or even really, if you're me, what the weight classes even are, you know? 
super junior middleweight whatever guys fighting on Friday night fights. Yeah, I thought I thought you were uh, the champion of that at one time. I am. Yes. A oh, reigning champion. Yeah. Wow. All right. I guess you're just about to start training. Huh? That's right. Going to get into my training camp any day now okay. as soon as we get a date set. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you've got a question, a comment, or a concern that you would like to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do that. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that'll get you in touch with us while you're there you might as well sign up for the breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss from tuesday through thursday when we're not recording the podcast it's funny it's lighthearted. it's an easy read it's short it's totally free to sign up for if you don't like it you can always just unsubscribe uh and that's about the size of it right sounds good to me anyway that's gonna do it for this portion of the show, we are going to get started with round number one. That starts right now. one of the co-main event podcast is brought to you by the national academy of sports medicine the national academy of sports medicine is looking for people who want an exciting career in the fitness industry where you wake up every day doing something that you love nasm trainers improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals don't miss this opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and change people's lives it doesn't get any better than that. The NASM guarantees you'll land a job within 60 days of earning your CPT certification or your money back. Ben, tell them how they can go on the internet and experience the free offer. Well, Chad, you can get a 14-day free trial of fun online programs at MyUSATrainer.com. That's MyUSATrainer.com. Restrictions apply. See MyUSATrainer.com for details. Well, Ben, just when you thought it was safe to go to press with the latest Ronda Rousey booking information, they done changed it on us again. We thought we were going to get Ronda Rousey against Holly Holm at UFC 195 on January 2nd in, I believe, Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, this past week, Dana White goes on SportsCenter, as we noted during the first part of the show, and announces a switcheroo that we're moving that up to November and uh, Ronda Rousey is now going to take on home at UFC 193 in the big stadium in Australia. Uh, what's really going on? You know, I'll tell you what's really going on. And that is, as I referred to it in an article I had go up earlier today, it's kind of convenience booking at this point for the UFC, right? You you had this stadium thing already planned. It was going to be Robbie Lawler and Carlos Condit. Uh, then that falls apart. You still got to fill out that stadium. You got to get somebody in there who can put some butts and seats in the stadium. And I'm sure Mark Hunt is pretty popular, and I'm sure there's some fond memories of his fight with Bigfoot Silva, but I don't know if that's going to fill up the entire damn stadium. So you know what? Go ahead and bump Ronda Rousey and Holly Holm up a couple months earlier and uh, see if they can do it. I mean, obviously, the criticism you could make here is that we already thought Holly Holm needed more time. Yeah. This is this is the topic I wanted to bring up. Go go for it. 
Uh, and now we're giving her the exact opposite after she's agreed to the fight. And I don't know if you saw the comments that her manager made to share dog, but he was basically like, yeah, we tried to talk our way out of this title fight. And they said, no, we really want you to do this. So, okay. We get said, we'll go ahead and do it. Uh, and instead, after you agree to that, then they say, you know what? You have even less time. We'll bump it. You know, now you have about two months. Right. Dramatically less time. You thought you were going to get about five months. The, right. The first time around. Uh, and it goes back to the thing we've always said about Holly Holm, and that's that she seems to have the size, the athleticism, maybe the skill set to give Ronda Rousey a fight. But the one thing about her is that in her first two UFC appearances, it's definitely looked like she needed to get a little bit more seasoning under her, you know, get her legs under her a little bit more in the octagon. Maybe when you have five months to sit around and game plan uh, with the geniuses down there at, at uh, Jackson Winklejohn, you could come up with with something and drill the hell out of it and, and have a, a chance. Now you cut that down to just two months, and uh, I believe that the task that you have in front of you just got an awful lot larger. Uh, the other thing that strikes me about this in terms of kind of a screw job for Holly Holm is that now suddenly you're going to fight Ronda Rousey in an enormous stadium full of how many people does this stadium seat? They're, they were talking something crazy, weren't they? Uh, there's always the question of how much, how many people does it seat, and then how many people will it seat for a fight. I, but I don't, you know, you know, there the UFC said something about breaking uh, MMA attendance records, right? So which seems kind of made up, like a thing, like a like an accolade you can stick on the Ronda Rousey Wikipedia page or the graphic that goes up on FS1 to talk about her. Also, seems like one of those things where you might be overpromising. So the uh, the uh, I'm not even gonna what is it at Etihad Stadium in. Uh, feel like I nailed that uh, over there in Australia. <laughs> you looked super confident as it you were saying. It says on the on the Wikipedia page 56,347 as venue capacity and 53,359 as seating capacity. Uh I don't know like I, the thing that bothers me about this is like you already are rushing Holly Holm into this fight. You've already uh, we've already said that it seemed like she did wasn't totally comfortable in the UFC. Uh, now she has to go out there on shorter notice than she thought in front of maybe 56,000 screaming Australians who are probably not going to be there cheering for her. Uh, you don't know. Maybe she's huge in Australia. That could be, man. I don't know. Uh, if that would, that would trouble me a little bit if I were on her team. Yeah. You know, if I were on her team, certainly. Uh, and obviously they, we're not crazy about rushing right into the the Ronda Rousey fight to begin with. So I, I'm sure that they they probably have some reservations for it. From the sound of it, it sounded like they felt like the financial compensation was enough to make it worth it at this point. But as someone who has a stake in neither team and is not looking at it that way, I don't mind it as much. I can see how it is. It does kind of feel like... Uh, uh, maybe a little bit of a screw job for Holly Holm, but I think if you waited five months and even gave her as much time as she wants to game plan and drill her judo, she's still going to go in there a 10 to 1 underdog, and we still are all going to expect Ronda Rousey to go in there and thrash her. The way I see it, this way, at least we get this one out of the way a little sooner, and then maybe we can start talking about Rousey Cyborg, which is what we all want to talk about to begin with. That's the one we want to see. I mean, we're going to, you know how it's going to go. Uh, assuming Holly Holm does not go in there and shock the world, assuming it's another Ronda Rousey fight, then immediately we're going to start up that, that cyborg stuff again. And I think that the more times you go through this, 
the more worn down the UFC's but she can't make 135 defenses will get. I think that eventually it's going to be one of those things where, all right, what what can she make? 140? Fine, let's do 140. I think that that's the direction we're headed. And stuff like this, you know, it just feels like little way stations to that that eventual destination. Uh, a couple of side notes to this story. It's going to be interesting to see what happens to that welterweight title shot because... Uh, but that I mean, could go anywhere at this point, yeah, right? Yeah, I think we all agreed that Robbie Lawler versus Carlos Condit was an awesome fight. Uh, but it was also a booking that surprised us a little bit since Carlos Condit had just come back from injury and just had the one fight uh, under his belt since then. Um, so it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens after Johnny Hendricks goes out and fights Tyron Woodley uh, in October at UFC 192. There will be, you know, the plot could thicken a little bit, I think, uh, in terms of what's going to happen with that welterweight title fight. But Let's talk a little bit more about Ronda Rousey, Holly Holm in, the, in this big stadium. Uh, I wrote a story last week on Bleacher Report about that the UFC was actually having kind of a surprisingly bullish year on pay-per-view so far. Uh, and depending on how things go at, at UFC 194, when Conor McGregor and Jose Aldo, we assume, get it done, uh, that it could amount to the UFC's best business year since 2010, which was the last year of the Brock Lesnar bubble. Uh, and that I was, I was calculating without another Ronda Rousey fight during 2015, uh, back when we thought she wasn't going to fight until 2000 or until, you know, January 2nd, 2016, you squeeze another Ronda Rousey buy rate on here and you get up anywhere near 900,000 or whatever her Betch Cohea fight did. Uh, suddenly you are looking at a very, very, very good year on pay-per-view for the UFC. So Ben, are we buying any kind of conspiracy theory here that the UFC really wanted to bolster uh, its fiscal year, so to speak, and maybe just got lucky with this welterweight title injury? You know, I'm, I'm sure that that doesn't hurt, but I have a hard time. If that were the motivation, then why not just go ahead and try to book that, try to book that somewhere before the end of the year? Anyway, you know, why you, you wouldn't do it as a plan B this way if, if that were really your motivation, I think. Uh, I mean, I, and you say like, I'm interested too, because you say if people buy this at the same rate that they bought Ronda Rousey versus Betch Cohea, which I was surprised that the buy rate for that one was that big because I guess it just means that not enough, that enough people had finally heard about Ronda Rousey, that phenomenon of Ronda Rousey had finally reached out into the mainstream. And they didn't learn enough about it to realize that it was going to be a really one-sided squash match or didn't care. And so if that many people would tune in for that, then I'm curious to see what this one will do. Because logically, it should be better. Holly Holm, better better fighter, better challenge for Ronda Rousey. You know, not as good at making mean faces, I guess, or, or, or saying inflammatory things in the media. But... You'd think that you could tell somebody, okay, former boxing champion, she's going to fight Ronda Rousey next. And even the people who would be like, I don't know, man, I paid 60 bucks for this last time and it was over in a hurry and I could have just waited and seen the whole thing on the internet. Even those people might be like, well, okay, maybe I'll, I'll go around again. This one sounds like it could be legit. So does this one do absolutely huge numbers or was that kind of a one-time thing where a lot of people all at once decided, let's see what this Ronda Rousey thing is about. And then they feel like they know what it's about. Yeah. I think it depends entirely on whether or not the mainstream media is willing to go all in on Ronda Rousey a second time in a row. 
right towards the 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 home stretch of that uh, UFC 189 and ultimately in the buy rate it felt like Betch Cohea was kind of immaterial to that I'm not sure that that we got much of a a bump out of her trash talk or anything like that I think people were just uh fascinated by Ronda Rousey and and by people I mean you know non-fight fans people that just wanted to tune in as you said to see what the whole Ronda Rousey thing was about so um, I don't necessarily know that opponent has a lot to do with that. I feel like we're into this weird celebrity stage of Ronda Rousey's career where uh, the UFC is trying to market her to people who aren't necessarily fight fans, and it may not matter who her opponent is or whether or not her opponent is viewed as being a a, a good challenge. I think it's going to come down to how much of a rub she's able to get from people like ESPN and additionally to that, whether or not, just as you talked about, uh, people are turned off by the fact that these fights are later just viewable on the vine and, and they want to just save the money and, and, you know, watch the social media clips later. That'll be interesting. And that'll tell us a lot. I think about Rousey's long-term staying power as the UFC's top star. Let's do, uh, are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your, are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, Chad, I know we're going to end up talking more about UFC 191 later in the show, but one of the things I wanted to point out, lest it go unnoticed, you know who's fighting on the fight pass prelims of UFC 191? Mm, fight pass prelims. Uh, some people I've never heard of. Just my guess. How about Joseph Jonathan Riggs? That's right. The Diesel. Joe Riggs himself fighting Ron Stallings on the prelim portion of UFC 191 on fight pass. But the thing I really want us to take note of here is that Joe Riggs with, like, you know, I believe at this point somewhere near 60 professional fights to his credit, fighting on Fight Pass. But are you fucking kidding me? Somehow, Joe Riggs still just 32 years old. Wow. I keep expecting that one of these days when he's 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 going to get older, he's going to show up and he's going to be 45 just overnight. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Joe Riggs is a person that I've heard of on the fight pass prelims. I believe if my math is correct, this will be maybe his 58th professional fight. 32 years old. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, speaking of 60 professional fights, did you see the damn picture of Melvin Gillard's damn hand? Unfortunately, I did. After his split decision loss to Brandon Gertz at Bellator 145 last Friday. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? I looked like a balloon with fingers. Like someone had blown up a rubber glove and tied it off. You draw some eyeballs on the side of that thing and it is a chicken. Wow. Are you fucking kidding me? He says that happened early in the second round and then he fought the rest of the way. Which, I guess that's where 60 professional fights will get you. I guess it is. Can you imagine having the, the glove pulled off your hand and the wraps cut off when by the time that thing has started no, to swell I up? No, I cannot. That's just awful. Yeah. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you kidding me? Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. There's a lot going on in Bellator these days. A lot of balls up up in the air. A lot of questions about 
which direction Bellator is going to take in the future. I mean, on one hand, you got Fedor Emelianenko saying he's going to come back, but then you got his old buddy Scott Coker saying he feels like he's already been there and done that with Strike Force. You got uh, the the big Bellator Dynamite event coming up, which, by the way, beforehand features a fan fest meet and greet uh, with none other than Fedor Emelianenko involved. Uh, and then, you know, you got the actual fights that we know are going to happen. Tito Ortiz, uh, going to trash talk his way all the way up to that whoa, fight whoa, with, whoa. with Liam McGeary, who let's, is then going to be delighted by it. Yeah. Let's not go overboard with the sand fights we know are going to happen. Okay. All right. Huntington Beach bad boy and his pile of trash body are involved. Okay. We think we are cautiously optimistic that smiling at Liam McGeary is going to triangle choke Tito Ortiz in the first round, probably. And that according to Scott Coker, that Tito Ortiz asked for that fight in lieu of a Tito Ortiz-Frank Shamrock fight. What? He said that? That's crazy. Which? That is crazy. There's no way I would want to fight Liam McGeary if I'm Tito Ortiz, rather than Frank Shamrock. That's why you're not Tito Ortiz, I guess. Here's the quote from Scott Coker. Originally, I had him ready to fight Frank Shamrock. That was the original fight, and Frank agreed. We went to Tito, and he was like, nope, I want to fight Liam McGeary or Emmanuel Newton for the title. Shamrock versus Ortiz and San Jose would have been just a monster fright. I'm thinking like a promoter here, but he didn't want to do it, and he just kept bugging me. When Liam fought Emmanuel, he just kept tapping me on the shoulder and said, I want to fight the winner of those two. Now, I'm going to say, first of all, before we move on, Tito Ortiz versus Frank Shamrock in San Jose, would watch. Hashtag would watch. I mean, it'd be another one where you might feel a little bad about yourself afterwards, but you hashtag would watch. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this The Fedor thing is promoter talk. Right. There's no way if Bellator had the opportunity to land the last emperor, Fedor Emelianenko, for a deal that it felt was worthwhile, that it would pass that up. Right. You're saying you don't think that Fedor Emelianenko and his people came to Scott Coker with a reasonable uh, deal, reasonable parameters for an offer out there. And Scott Coker said, you know what, Fedor, it was beautiful the first time we did it. And I'd like to leave it that way. I'd like to just remember us as we were. It seems more likely to me that Fedor's people came into the room in all stonewashed denim outfits <laughs> with a couple of empty Halliburton suitcases and threw them up on Scott Coker's desk. And we're just like, Scott, you fill this with cash and we will deliver you Fedor Emelianenko. And Scott Coker threw his hands up and said, too rich for my blood. <laughs> well, you know, the plot thickens in that one i don't know if you saw that apparently on the fedor instagram account there was some kind of like photoshopped thing making it look like he was basically already in the ufc and it was greeted with a smiley face comment from dana white's instagram which apparently uh, this is the world we live in now the old smiley face yeah. reply from the most powerful man in our industry <laughs> uh it would be a weird tightrope for the ufc to walk although i'm certain one that it would be certainly willing to walk to bring Fedor Emelianenko in at this stage after company brass basically ran him through the ringer the first time he wouldn't sign with them uh, and, you know, said he was a joke and, and past his prime and over the hill and all this stuff to bring him in now uh, and put him against almost anyone in the UFC top 10 would be an admission, admission would it not that all that other stuff was just noise, right? Well, like they wanted him all along. They couldn't get him. They tried to run his reputation through the to the ringer and and then tweeted more smiley face stuff when he lost to Fabricio Verdum. But now they get a chance to get him back, maybe. Uh, and if they did, I think we would all just see that as an acknowledgement of what we knew was true all along, and that was 
you get a chance to get the greatest heavyweight of all time in your organization, you take it. Well, first of all, you know who else uh, the UFC said they weren't interested in? Holly Holm, for one. Right. So that's how that stuff goes. And you know uh, who else in the current UFC heavyweight division who are pretty important players that the UFC at one time or another decided wasn't interested in? Guys like Fabricio Verdum, guys like Andre Arlovsky. That's, I mean, I think at this point, this kind of thing has ha- this about face has happened often enough that it's almost to the point where it's not even worth taking note of anymore. That's not going to be a huge obstacle, I don't think. I mean, I don't think the UFC is going to be like, but what if this uh, seems to contrast with <laughs> stances we've taken in the past? It'd be well, like this them like, does our previous rhetoric. Then where will we stand? <laughs> well, what will become of our credibility if we make another one of these ads proclaiming a different person, the pound for pound best fighter on the planet? We just did this three months ago with somebody else. No, that's not how they're thinking over there. So I don't think that's a big obstacle. Million dollar question, though. Are we buying that Fedor shows up in the UFC or does Dana White go on Piper's pit to do the contract signing and Sakakabara shows up and hits him with a coconut? And next thing we know, <laughs> Fedor is fighting uh, Ishii one more time on uh, New Year's Eve somewhere in Japan. Are we just getting in a twist over nothing here? I don't I don't see that coconut scenario playing out really as as likely I mean, as, as fun as that would be. Uh, but I don't know. It does seem like I can totally imagine, like we've said before, in the the twisted way that MMA fans get what they want, the way a person in a Twilight Zone episode gets what they want, which is to say, kind of, but in such a demented way that it feels almost torturous, it does seem like this is when we'd get Fedor in the UFC, does it not? This Fedor in the UFC now against you know somebody like Jared Rochalt or something like that—that that is the MMA fan equivalent of Burgess Meredith putting on his glasses to read all those books that he finally has time for now, only to have the lenses fall out on him. There yeah, was time I, now, Chad. I think that's what I said a couple of weeks ago. Like the, the, the MMA gods would only allow this to happen after it was not necessarily the primetime event that we wanted it to be uh, back when he should have come to the UFC or they should have been able to come to an agreement. Uh, at the same time, though, if we know one thing about Fedor Emelianenko, it's that he views the world, including the MMA world, differently than we do. So I don't think we should make this a Bellator or the UFC argument. I think there's a, a good chance that he goes back with his friends in Japan and, uh, you know, has a couple more fights that, that very few people on this side of the Pacific are going to watch. Uh, anyway, though, let's talk let, briefly. Light heavyweight pairings. Which light heavyweight pairing are you more fired up for? Uh, Muhammad Lawal against, who's he fighting, Linton Vassal? Or uh, the big homie, Manny Newton? against Phil Davis and there's only one right answer to this question so it's consider the it big part. homie stepping back into that fleshy realm Chad that's right it's the big homie against Phil Davis a lot of answers will most likely be provided about the fitness of Emmanuel Newton I'll tell you what if Emmanuel Newton shows up there hopefully not on any kind of like weird diet where he's like oh I've I've only been eating popsicles for 60 days because that's I it came to me in a vision if he goes in there and is in a shape to perform and steps back into that fleshy realm and Emmanuel Isaac Newton beats Phil Davis I am ready to get all the way fucking excited about the big homie Manny Newton. I don't he, know about you. He hits him with a, something spinning. Just a, some kind of crazy. What if Phil Davis turns off like a robot, like Muhammad <laughs> Lawal did when when uh, Manny Newton hit him with that spinning back fist? Man, I'll I'll be jumping out my seat, Chad. 
I just hope I just hope he's ready to step back into that fleshy realm and to say a bunch of batshit crazy stuff beforehand. What if? What if? Ben, Tate Ortiz upsets Liam McGeary in the main event. Okay, Emmanuel so now we're just Newton, having fun. Now yes. we're just having fun? Okay. It's a Bellator round. What else are we going to do? <laughs> uh, Manuel Newton emerges victorious from this tournament, and we get the big homie against the Huntington Beach bad boy. Something else. Hashtag would watch. Let's not forget, though, that Bellator is still Bellator. We, uh, it seemed like they were moving to position the barn cat, uh, Tamden McCrory, in a, a middleweight title fight only to be sort of jilted by him as he returns to the UFC. Uh, so I think Bellator had to scramble a little bit to put together a new middleweight title fight, Brandon Halsey against Rafael Carvalho uh, at the Mohegan Sun in October. Uh, and the barn cat, my friend, did not have too many nice things to say about his time over in Scott Coker's world. No, he, he threw some shade on his way out the door. Surprising because he was so successful. And... uh it's, it kind of, I don't know, maybe this is not true, but like from the outside looking in, it's, it's, it seemed like my perception of it was that Bellator kind of gave him an opportunity, right? And then he comes in, wins a couple of fights by knockout, skirts right on out the door again, back to, back to that girl that you were talking about earlier. Well, who you clear your schedule for. I, you see, I never blame fighters for doing stuff like that because as I've heard from coaches before, and I think is definitely a true thing, fighters have to be selfish. Uh, because as we've seen, Chad, if the fighter is not looking out for his or her own best interests, ain't nobody else going to do it for him. So, hey, if he feels like the, the money for him is, is over in the UFC, go get that money. I mean, maybe don't, don't be such a jerk about it that you can't go back or still be cool if you run into, to Scott Coker in the hallway. But, uh, I, I get you. I feel your pain there. Yeah, I certainly don't blame McCrory for doing that because, you know, in the same vein of what you were just saying, the organization will always cut you like it ain't no thing. Uh, so you're right. He's got to take care of himself and, and do what's right. Still kind of a bummer for Bellator, though. It felt like the at least from the emails that I was receiving, it felt like they were on the verge of announcing that fight. And then suddenly the barn cat is fighting somewhere else. So kind of a bummer there for for Bellator. Well, you know what they say about the barn cat. I mean, you don't. You don't ever really tame the barn they cat, They call Chad. him the barn cat for a reason, right? And that's probably because he wanders from barn to barn? You're just going to wake up one of these mornings and the barn cat will be gone. I assume that's it's his, it's his transient nature that it led to his nickname, the barn cat. I, that's as good an explanation as I've heard. <laughs> anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We're going to get started with round number three right now. Demetrius Krishna Johnson and John Thomas Dodson III are set to renew the rivalry at UFC 191 this Saturday. Demetrius Johnson is talking a lot about history. He says he wants to go after Anderson Silva's record of 10 straight UFC title defenses. He's already got six, so I don't know that it seems terribly crazy to think that he might make it. Meanwhile, John Dodson is just spitting hot fire all over everything. Every time anybody asks him any question about this fight, uh, he seems fired up about this. Do you buy the idea that the magician can come into this fight and shock Demetrius Johnson and take the title back to Albuquerque and Greg Jackson, Mike Winklejohn's vaunted team there? You know, I'm not going to say he can't do that. 
I think a guy like him who, as hard as he hits, and we saw Demetrius Johnson feel that a little bit in the last fight, uh, he can always catch you and and hurt you and, and maybe turn the whole night upside down for you. However, if you're asking me who I think is going to win this one, I think Demetrius Johnson's just a little bit too good, man. He just doesn't make many mistakes at all, and he doesn't leave you many openings to land that one big punch. I, I, I mean... I'm interested to see what kind of improvements and adjustments John Dodson might have made because it did seem like in the last one, it seemed like as the fight wore on, Demetrius Johnson figured out how to win it, and John Dodson was kind of still going with what he started with. Uh, and so I'm interested to see how that dynamic has changed this time, although I was a little bit surprised. Have you seen the odds on this one? No, I have not. Demetrius Johnson, I mean, not surprised he's the favorite, but about a five to one favorite. Really, that does surprise me. You know, the uh, the first fight is if you had of, twenty bucks you never wanted to see again, Chad. Don't steal my taglines. I'll use them where I see fit. The free the the first fight between these two is the one of the free fights that the uh, UFC put up on on YouTube this or a couple weeks ago. Actually, I watched that last week uh, to prepare to talk to both these guys, and that's a close fight, man. Like. Uh, John Dodson, of course, leading up to this fight is talking crazy, saying that he thinks he won that fight. Uh, but the first couple rounds were definitely very close. And I think you could make the case Dodson won those rounds because he drops Demetrius Johnson a couple times, uh, in those first two rounds. Uh, and then there's the, the champion kind of takes over in those final three rounds. That was only the second time in his career that John Dodson had gone five rounds. The first time, incidentally, uh, was when he went, went five rounds with Pat Runez and, uh, and lost that also a split decision back at the ultimate warrior challenge seven. In Fairfax, Virginia, which oh, I yes. know we, we all, all tuned in for that. We all remember that one. Back on October 3rd, 2009. Oh, you don't have to tell me. Etched in the brain, my man. Uh, and Demetrius Johnson told me this past week that Pat Runez was actually a training partner of his heading into that first fight. And he told him, man, if you just stay on this guy, he will break and you will beat him. And that's kind of what happened in the first fight. And Demetrius Johnson remains convinced that that is exactly what will happen in the second fight as well. Um, so if John Dodson shows up uh, ready to go five rounds. I think things could be a little bit more interesting, but I think, like you said, you'd kind of have to, I mean, just for the sheer uh, history of what we know about this division, you'd have to be a little bit crazy to pick against Demetrius Johnson at 125 pounds right now. Yeah, especially considering that uh, when you think about it, John Dodson really hasn't had a chance to compete quite as much between that uh, last fight as you'd like him to. You know, he's dealt with some injuries and stuff. You know, last fight was uh, that that decision against Zach Mikulski where he didn't look exactly spectacular in that one. Uh, and you know, you, you'd I guess. It seems like one of those divisions, I was thinking about this where you were saying John Dodson or uh, Demetrius Johnson aiming for uh, that that record of Anderson Silva, what's it, 10? 10, 10, 10 title defenses. 10 consecutive title defenses uh, for Anderson Silva. And it made me wonder, will we look at it differently if Demetrius Johnson breaks that record but only fights four or five different dudes? You know, and I, I don't know. It seems like it's one of those divisions where we were kind of looking around and saying, well, all right. John Dodson, that feels like one that you could sell again just because he did manage to do something to the champ. So go ahead and run that one back. Although, I mean, honestly, it feels like Demetrius Johnson is better now than he was the first time they fought. Well, yeah, Demetrius Johnson has had five fights since that fight. So he's had a lot of uh, ring time, and he does seem like the kind of guy who just kind of keeps getting better and better. Uh, it also seems, though, like he still, to this day, really struggles to to convince 
mixed martial arts fans that, that he's a guy that they would want to shell out their money to watch. Uh, and I don't know if that's just because of his fighting style or because he is 125 pounds or because up until recently it's, it's, he's kind of been portrayed as a, a, a real nice guy, kind of a low key character who prefers to do his talking in the cage. Uh, John Dodson certainly thinks of this fight as a fight over the soul of the flyweight division and, uh, is convinced that if he wins, he will be able to be a better and more marketable champion than, uh, Demetrius Johnson. Um, but as far as Demetrius Johnson is concerned and how we view him historically, I know that that is an important thing for him in his own mind to uh, to break that record and have that be a thing that he says nobody can ever take away from him. But at the same time, you know, we, we talk about Anderson Silva's greatness, and that's certainly part of it, that he's strung together all of those UFC uh, title defenses. But it seems to me like even if Demetrius Johnson were to break that record and string together 10 title defenses in a row, it's not as though MMA fans are going to be like, oh, well, now, now at this point, we must respect and and send our money Demetrius Johnson's way. Like, that'll be a huge milestone and be an important thing in his career. But at the same time, I don't really see it changing anybody's mind about him. Yeah, well, I mean, at this point, what what could he do? Yeah, nothing. That's the- What could he do? What could he say? You know, I think the best way for him to go with it is the way that he's been edging towards lately, which is just to say, like, you know what? I don't really care if you buy it. Like, I'm awesome. I don't know what your problem is. Uh, and I'm not going to worry about it too much. I think that's the the best option available to him at this point, because if he were to start just trying to, you know, channel Chael Sonnen or something like that, I think we would all see that as uh, something that just rings really false yeah, for him well, uh, but it's a weird situation though because when you talk to demetrius johnson he does talk trash and he you know he does have a little bit of an edge to him and he you know uh he works pretty blue if i do say so <laughs> swore a little bit more than i expected him to but like uh i came away from our latest conversation either wondering if he had kind of made the conscious decision to portray himself as having a little bit more of an edge or if like this had been there the whole time and we had just sort of uh, overlooked it in favor of this uh, storyline about him being like a quiet family man You're who saying, lives outside Seattle, Washington with his wife and is nice and, and a very technical fighter and blah, blah, blah. You're saying maybe there's a freedom in no longer giving a fuck for there him? There may in fact be. Like it, it, it feels like one of those situations where you know Demetrius Johnson is coming out of his shell a little bit and I just wonder if it's too little too late. Like People have already made up their minds about him. Or there's the other possibility that that was never really the knock against him and it's just that uh, you know, casual fans or whatever you want to call them don't want to shell out their money to watch 125 pound guys fight. Yeah, that could be it too. I, I think we talked before about how it seems like you know boxing hasn't had a problem getting fans interested in some of the smaller fighters. What you see going on with Conor McGregor now makes you think that at least to a certain point, you know, if you can get people interested in 145 pounders, why shouldn't you be able to get them interested in 125 pounders? I don't know. Maybe it's one of those things where it's just a bunch of that stuff all adds up together. And or, like you said, the the narrative has just been too set at this point. Um, and it does seem like, you know, when there's a Demetrius Johnson fight coming up because you start to see the articles pop up about why fans aren't more into Demetrius Johnson and why they should be at times. You know, And I think that that's just I, the best thing he could do. I, right now is what he is doing, which is to stop thinking about it. And if we would leave him alone, stop talking about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, let's say he gets past John Dodson. You might have uh, Juicy Formesia 
coming for him. You might have Henry Sayudo coming for him. Uh, John Lineker, I suppose, if he could ever get it together and make 125 pounds, put a win streak together. Uh, and those are all guys who certainly have potential. I, I think we've all looked at uh, the, just from his background, Henry Cejudo as being a guy who could ch- challenge Demetrius Johnson with his with his uh, Olympic level wrestling. But like, really, if he gets past this one, you know, we're talking about him only needing four more fights and maybe if he stays healthy, a couple more years to break that record. Right. You know, and I think that, you know, Henry Cejudo is a guy that it seems really easy to get excited about that idea. But then in his last fight, even he will tell you that he didn't look like he was ready to fight Demetrius Johnson. So I think you still got a little bit of time there. I'm wondering when is going to get to the point where everybody starts pressuring him to go up and, and fight at, at bantamweight. Because I feel like that would actually be a lot of fun. We saw him against Dominic Cruz before the UFC had the flyweight division. Uh, you know, if you told me that uh, Demetrius Johnson and TJ Dillashaw was going to be the 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 time we finally get that uh, big mega super fight champion versus champion fight that the UFC has promised in multiple weight classes over multiple years, and hey, now it's going to happen here, I'd be like, not my first choice, but still hashtag would watch. Yeah, for sure. And especially you know, the fighting style of TJ Dillashaw seems like it would make an awesome compliment to Demetrius Johnson. And who knows, man, maybe if if DJ starts moving around in weight classes and, and uh, was able to, to beat the bantamweight champ, then people would, would start to give him a little bit more respect, man. I don't know. I mean, like we just talked about what would it take for this guy to convince people to watch him. Maybe that would be one of the only things I could come up with. And even then, who knows? Here's an idea. He goes up to bantamweight, but... When he goes up to bantamweight, he becomes evil Demetrius Johnson. Okay. Just yeah. goes mustache goatee, uh-huh. like when, like, you know, the cartoon character becomes evil. Yeah. Uh, and just takes a real dark turn as soon as he's up there at 135 pounds. And then win or lose, comes back down to flyweight, and he's the nice guy again. Interesting. Well-groomed like beard again. I feel like you are a WWE writer pitching me a split personality angle right now and i'm i'm really good at reading people and i think you like it a lot who is the evil version of mighty mouse like is there a like spider-man has venom right is that you know i don't is that right yeah i don't know if the mighty mouse cartoons ever decided to take it in that way you don't think that mighty mouse ever took a real dark turn I don't think they ever addressed frank miller's mighty mouse the duality of man really in mighty mouse well let's do just saying stuff ben and then we can get out of here why don't you do your, your just saying stuff first? I will, Ben. A couple of the UFC's quote-unquote independent investigations into the conduct of its own athletes wrapped up this past week. And, surprise, surprise, they both basically turned up inconclusive results. First, you had Anthony Johnson. He was forced to apologize for basically bossing up on a lady at the gym and tossing her yoga mat across the workout area. Well, that one seems kind of conclusive, doesn't he, it? Well, he also had to agree to make a donation to her charity of choice, which for her sake, I hope she is the treasurer, trustee, and only board member of. Uh, a few days later, you had heavyweight Travis Brown essentially being cleared, at least in the eyes of his employer, for allegations of domestic violence made by his wife. Uh, both guys are now fit to return to the cage. And look, man, we have no real idea what actually happened in this thing with Travis Brown. We know that Anthony Johnson basically confessed on Facebook and therefore had to be handed some kind of punishment. 
Uh, and the UFC does a good job of making these things sound good and thorough with their, quote, former FBI agent with more than 25 years of experience and their independent law firms and, my personal favorite part, their statements that domestic violence allegations, quote, if proven true with facts, will result in swift action on our part. Huh. If proven true with facts, Ben. Because I have no fucking idea how we would ever prove anything true without facts. But look. I digress. This week, I'm just saying, eventually, one of these UFC independent investigations is going to have to nail somebody to the wall. Otherwise, I might start thinking they're bullshit. I'm just saying. Just saying. Which I had kind of to piggyback off that one. You mentioned the Travis Brown situation, which, by the way, I would hope that if they did find conclusive proof... That uh, he was guilty of these domestic violence allegations, they would have immediately referred that to the authorities, who seems like they should be the ones handling such an investigation. Uh, But, you know, interesting note, we mentioned earlier the the Fighter and the Kid podcast uh, being renewed and a a big deal with Fox Sports. Cha-ching! And they tweeted out a little clip that then was deleted, and it sounds like, from what people said about listening to the show, did not actually make it into the show. But in it, uh, Brendan Schaub had some choice words for Ronda Rousey, who is said to be dating Travis Brown now, um, which, first of all, I like to just say, maybe we should stay up out of fighters' personal lives a little bit when it comes to who they're dating and and what their relationship status situation is, uh, and not gleefully rush to write articles on that. But Brendan Schaub said, it's tough when you're like, uh, don't be a do-nothing bitch and you hate on Mayweather and then your boyfriend's over here beating the shit out of his wife. Ooh. I'm just saying, if Fox Sports did edit that one out of the podcast, they might have done Brendan Schaub a big favor because that's how you get sued, man. Is when somebody has dealing with allegations of domestic violence and you go ahead and make the leap to just saying that it totally, absolutely happened and you say this on your podcast where of course then you'll later assure us that you're not a journalist because if you were a journalist you might have known not to say that slanderous is what that could potentially be could potentially be a lot of things especially when the independent investigation comes back inconclusive yeah i'm sure you're gonna be holding that one up inconclusive out this bitch what Free and clear. That is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 191 and look ahead to an awfully slow September in the mixed martial arts world. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I thought of the last time we saw each other after the podcast. What was that? Tuesday night. Writing group. Oh, yeah. Boom. That's still almost a week ago, though. I feel like you've been making yourself scarce. It feels like it was just yesterday. Anything you want to tell me? Got any new relationships going or uh, vices? Harboring any new vices? Got a few vices. Yeah. yeah. Uh, new ones are just the same. Just drinking, gambling, and loose women. And a little bit of.